The military has spent centuries developing training to strip young people down, you know, to peel us all apart and put us back together in the way they want us. And it's only when you look back at the process of training do you understand that they're, they're reconstructing the way you think. I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Richard Sharp, former Royal Marine Commando. I've been in loads of gunfights. I've been in loads of difficult situations. I, put, I still put myself in different situations now where like, you know, fear would be a thing. I would do them all at once to not be back on the front page of papers in that way. Richard, hey. so nice to actually see you, meet you in the I flesh. Know, not through like a tiny little screen. I know, because the last <laughs> time we were chatting, it was when you were in Team Rubicon and you were helping out in the pandemic. And yeah. ever since then, I thought, no, I need to get Richard back to hear more about you and okay. your story. So, and I've just found out you're a Geordie. So, I mean, that's absolutely made it for me. <laughs> so you yeah. can go home now, we're yeah. done. <laughs> I mean, obviously in disguise with my uh, deep Southern voice. Yeah. So Richard, tell me a bit about where it all started, how you got into the Royal Marines. Dad was a Royal Marine. I loved him, aspired to be like him. He's a big, gregarious dude. And I can remember about being about nine years old in, in the hotel now in in Cornwall and he had all his mates around and I just I couldn't get over at that age what these blokes looked like to me these like towering big men fit really funny they're falling about themselves laughing but they were like it was the way they were my mum they were like super decent to my mum yeah. and there was just something in that I just said oh, I want to be that you know I want to be like them and I had no idea what being a marine actually was but from nine I wanted to be a marine and so every decision Every life decision I've probably made since nine has been affected by being a Royal Marine, wanting to be a Royal Marine or having been one. You know, it's been the defining thing in, in my life. And what was that actually like? Tell me about your journey in the, uh, in the Royal Marines. Um, I mean, what was it like? The, the, the process of becoming a bootneck, becoming a Royal Marine, is incredibly challenging. And that, it's designed to be like that. So I, I went at 18 because I, I wanted to join as a Marine. I didn't want to join as an officer. Um, so I did in the end, but my dad wouldn't sign off on the paperwork. You know, he said, look, I, I had some decent GSEs, but I wasn't really a school guy. Um, and I was going to sixth form college. He said, look, you've got to go and get some A-levels and try and be an officer. Like, it will open up different opportunities for you. Um, if you fail that, like, if you can't get in, then you can still be a Marine, but try. So so I went at 18, um, really, I was a very sheltered 18-year-old, though. You know, I grew up in Cornwall, you know, young. Um, very narrow view for in the world, and I passed the well. I passed the fitness test for the first selection. But they just said that you're too immature, you're too wet behind the ears, so uh, we're not taking you forward. Because you do you do two pre-selections um, to try and get into training. Um, so I was a bit kicking the guts at 18, um, and then I got home and I said to my old man, I was going to join the Paris. And he was like, Okay, great, yeah. Where are you going to live? <laughs> and I was sort of laughing. He was like, No, dead serious. I'm not having it. Not having a par under this roof. What is it between the paras yeah, and the Royal right. Marines? You know, well, you just had Hugh on. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we get on now. I don't know if we would have done back in the day. But uh, I then went back to playing rugby. So I played rugby for the Cornish Pirates. They were called Pendleton Union back then. Um, and a team called Mounts Bay. I did that for three years. But the, the drive to be a bootneck was always there. Um, and at 21-ish, I decided I needed to get back on track. And, and I went. And then went straight through and got into training. And, um, you know, lived... 15 months of commando training, which is the longest, hardest 
into training in the world. Um, and I look back and, you know, at the time it's awful, but I look back, I loved it, you know, and I, the, the bonds we made with each other, it? just, you're living your boyhood dreams, you know. I mean, it sucks at the time because you're cold, you're wet, you're tired, you're hungry. You don't, there's complete uncertainty, although you don't know what's coming next. They're always trying to catch you out and make you suffer a bit more and see how low they can take you. And, but I look back and it's just like, it's like living all your childhood dreams, you know, with other amazing blokes that you're forming these huge relationships with. What do you miss most about it? Those relationships. Um, and if I'm really honest, um, there's, there's, I look back at pictures in, in Afghan stuff, you know, silly, covered in link and gungries, and it's like, that's the coolest I've ever been. <laughs> you know, you're just never going to be that cool again. You're not like, afraid? What, in Afghan? Oh, at any point? In, oh. Um... Fear, fear's a funny thing, isn't it? So, like, um, when people ask you about fear normally, I just try to think about how to answer that. Um, you're thinking about bombs and bullets and death and all that stuff. But actually, that's not really what preoccupies your mind on operation. Um, and the, what's been more of a driver for me is, is fear of failure. That's been a more constant in my life. And... Uh, and getting comfortable in uncertainty where you don't know what it is you're going to be dealing with. You know, that was something that mm. I had to develop earlier in life. So, no, not physical fear in terms of like, oh, this is going to get me killed. You don't think like that. I don't think you can think like that in those circumstances because then uh, you focus on the consequence of your action and not the performance you need to deliver. I think it's probably something that civilians... Um look at, I mean, when I, and I talk to a lot of people in the military, but say I hadn't, I guess your first thought is, oh my gosh, veterans, amazing. They put themselves, you know, in front of a bullet and mm. they're fighting. God, they must be scared every day. Mm. Or aren't they frightened? How do they deal with that fear? Mm. Yeah, I've never spoken to a veteran who's really talked about that. No. And I don't think that, I don't think, um, they, and I know I'm not trying to be all bravado, it's just that's not the way your brain works. Because you've, the military has spent centuries developing training to strip young people down, you know, to peel us all apart and put us back together in a way they want us. And it's only when you look back at the process of training, do you understand that they're, they're reconstructing the way you think and the, the processes they put you through, the training they put you through, creates automo automation in you so that you're not, thinking about the consequence, you're thinking about delivering the performance you need to deliver. Wow, that is really interesting, just the way you've described it, like they're stripping you down and then mm. building you back up. So if they've stripped you down, and when you leave, mm. how do you feel then? Um, yeah. Like going into a different world, right? Yeah, well, you're still getting stripped down again, yeah. but without the someone to rebuild you. Um, so it's difficult. It is difficult, and um, you know it's well documented that some veterans struggle to to rehabilitate, if that's the right word, into civilian strength. I, th I don't think rehabilitate's the right word because that implies somehow what they've done before is negative. But to transition. find themselves, transition, yeah. you know, find their new place, their new purpose, their new belonging. How did you feel when you left? Um, like the ground was rushing towards me you know like sort of jumping out of a plane and not sure if they got a parachute because so I got blown up in Afghan so my career was ending much shorter than I thought I had, I had no life plan beyond the Royal Marines I thought I was going to be a Royal Marine were you injured 
Um, so I'm now deaf on this side and it, the blast moves everything inside to ruins your circulation. So basically I got commander downgraded, um, which meant I couldn't stay in the core anymore. Um, so my life plan is now cut short way before I thought I was, well, I was 30, I think. Um, so then I had to start again, but with no real education qualifications, no idea what life outside the core would be like because I never bothered looking at it. Um, and then so I'm back in that uncertainty and trying to refine myself, create a new identity. I loved the identity I had. I didn't really want a new one necessarily. Um, and you know, ended up up here in London as actually it was a Cornish bumpkin that all he ever knew was rugby and soldiering. So how did you find that? How did you find the new Richard Sharp from still, being a royal still marine? Still finding it, I think. Um, I don't think you're ever the finished article. You shouldn't be. You know, we should all be constantly... Yeah, striving. Yeah, right? and it doesn't mean you can't be comfortable with who you are, because I think I'm really comfortable with who I am. But also, I think there's always potential. I mean, you've always got to reach for, for more. You know, if we, if we suddenly say, well, that's, this is it, well, then you're going to stagnate. I've, I've got hopefully 30, 40 years left, so I don't want to do that. But um, I had to, I had to quickly find a new job because <laughs> I pay a mortgage and um, those kind of things. But the identity is an evolving piece, and I think um, rugby was a handrail for me all my life. So when I didn't have that, I always had rugby, and rugby helped me transition. I played rugby for Barnes up here and Teddington, and um, but each career path I've had since, or not path, each career chunk barring banking, I never identified as a banker, has become my new identity, my new purpose. And I try and, my career, I try to make sure I'm doing things that I'm proud of and I'm fully in, not just something that pays the bills. Let's just quickly rewind to the banker because I was in the city for uh, close to 20 years. Right. Um, and what was your experience there? And, and why banking? So this was straight after the military, right? Straight from the Marines, yeah. So I was, I was married before to my ex-wife and she was from London. She was living in Plymouth with me on Dartmoor. She wanted to come back to London, understood. So I was just like, when I was a civilian, being a Royal Marine was the hardest thing out there. It was the biggest thing on the streets. So in my naivety, I just looked at investment banking as the equivalent of being a Royal Marine. It was the biggest, hardest thing on the street, right? And right. <laughs> You laugh. Sorry. Well, I know both now. I know right. Royal Marines now, and I certainly know invest yeah. investment bankers. Yeah, exactly. With a w. You're right. But I mean, suits wasn't out then. But you know, I sort of envisioned this like you know crunchy Wall Street environment, really alpha. I mean, it couldn't be any further from the truth, right? Um, and I, I just did networking after networking after networking. Ended up in Deutsche Bank, and was bitterly disappointed with. The amount of effort I put in. I'm trying not to smile. I'm really trying not to smile. And you know, it's just the polar opposite to being a bootleg. Culturally, what we were up to it was all about shareholder value, and we mm. weren't doing anything I was proud of. To the point where, when people, when I meet them in a pub, that's what they do. I try and, you know, I was I was um, competing at boxing at the time. I'd be like, I was a boxer, I'm a rugby player. I used to be a marine. I would do anything not to talk about the fact that I was a banker because I just wasn't proud of it. So money didn't sort of do it for you? Because, I mean, being in the city is all about money. That's what yeah. people care about. Yeah, and it still doesn't, you know, like we need money. Sure, like I'm like going away on big adventures and stuff, so I need money for that, but it doesn't drive me. Um, it doesn't doesn't make me happy. What I, what I do and what I feel about what I do is way more important, and who I do it with is way more important than what I get paid. Is that why the next steps were into charity? 
Um, I've never had that much of a deliberate plan. I'd love to say that I'm like really strategic and deliberate in my life. I'm not. I'm just very opportunistic. Um, I have, I think, quite a natural drive. So I'm always working hard. But I, I, I guess I'm just going with the flow and stuff. And I wanted out of banking um, and out of London and Help for Heroes offered me a job. Um, and it was just timing. I was like, right. So I, I didn't decide I was going to go into charity. Yes. That just, that presented at the right time. Um, and I, I jumped into that. Um, and then Team Rubicon presented and that was incredible. And then, you know, I've started my own business now doing more of this. So these things have just happened um, so when we last spoke, you were in Team Rubicon, which mm, got, I think, rebranded as To React. To yeah. react um, and you helped out a lot in the pandemic. Mm. What happened? Why did you leave? Um, <laughs> the You've all got to know, a bit like being a rugby player or a footballer, you've got to know when you're about to probably go on the downward slide of your career. Um, I, My business partner puts it wonderfully. There's hunters and there's farmers. I love being a hunter. I love building the excitement, the chaos of creating things. Once it gets big, as React got to, goes into a different, you know, as the chief executive, goes into a different operating plane then. It's about running a business, about running big teams. Things get slower. It gets quite political. I have a board um, of trustees and we were starting to jostle with each other. We then got government involvement. It's a different thing then. It's about farming what you've built. That's not really for me. And actually, my performance would have started to go downhill there. You were um, you were splattered a little bit across mm-hmm. the paper, yeah. <laughs> which I've got to mention, yeah, yeah, yeah. with your link to Prince Harry. I mean, I've never met Prince Harry. Um, we've been on some podcasts together, and he's done some volunteering um, for Team Rubicon, um, as was. But he and I have never actually been in the same room together. But there was enough of a link for them to, to put it all over the papers. Um, Team Rubicon was formed out of America, so a big American organisation, and CEO called um, Jake, oh, I forgot second name, <laughs> funny how things get repressed, yes. but anyway, CEO, Marine, and they were huge, 100,000 um, volunteers, raising 30, 40 million a year, big organisation. The two founders fell out, Will and Jake, and uh, Will started Team Rubicon Global, which was to open all the offshoots that England was. Um, and America, Caribbean, America, but they were at each other. And the, the, that context is important to why it all spilled into the papers. Because um, I'd gone to a leadership conference the year before it broke, and um, on the one of the nights, Jake and I had gone for a, an offside beer to talk about the strategy of the network, because the network was not working. We were doing our thing internationally, they were doing their thing domestically. And we were starting to create risk for each other. Their brand was risking us. Our activity was risking them. And there was friction. And there was Australia, and there was Canada, and there was Norway. And they were all doing their own things. And Jake wanted control of the network. He wanted it all back under America's um, remit. Oh, sounds like a company in the city, let alone the charity. This is a charity, right. right? This is a charity. And so he presented the plans. He and I were allies at the time. I was like, that doesn't really work for me, mate. You know, we're a UK charity, a UK board. Um, and we had a you know, reasonably heated conversation, as two CEOs can have. Um, but I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not backing this, mate. Um, we then, that night, we had a, a, a bonfire, and there's, I don't know, there's about a thousand people on the bonfire, and they're all telling stories. It's, a, it's an orchestrated thing. And he says, right, I want to hear from the CEO of the UK. 
and they wanted wanted my war story. Mm. I'm all drinking beers, and uh, come war stories, it's fine. Um, and then it it carries on. And now, to me, if you if you're drinking beers with loads of soldiers and you want war stories, then that's that's an environment you create an environment, yeah, yeah. and soldiers behave in a certain way with each other. And uh, I should have exercised a bit more judgment, but uh, at some point in that evening, and this bit I don't remember. I've somewhat, a civilian, two young female civilians have challenged me on my language and the stories I'm telling. Why but were they that? Well, they, they presumably weren't They were part, part of the staff. No, they were part oh. of the front staff. Um, and, you know, apparently in that moment of uh, use of fairly uh, colourful language and uh, that, that was the headline, you know, what do you mean I can't say cunt was uh, the headline uh-huh. of the Daily Mail. <laughs> But that was it. Well, sorry, no. I'm, I'm obviously not that offended. But. Well, that that's that was the headline. But um, two days later, I've walked into walked back into the the foyer. And it's still at this conference. Walked in the foyer, and there's two young volunteers getting down on it on the sofa. So I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like this is a public place, you know, blah, blah, blah. and it's all chill, it's all relaxed, you know. I don't really care about stuff. I just they were wearing their team look on t-shirts. Let's keep it calm. Just um, take them off yeah. <laughs> when you're doing it. <laughs> and one of the, the the young lady was Canadian. She was due in her car at zero three that morning. This is probably midnight zero one, and she's still up with this Australian guy. I go to bed about half an hour later. We all go to bed. I wake up in the morning, and uh, the Canadian CEO. I thought, mate, uh, mate, this is where it all gets super political. It's we need two podcasts to explain this in detail. Um, and this, the Canadian CEO and the American CEO have written this email accusing me and the Australian CEO, who wasn't even in the room, of um, sexual assault on this uh, young Canadian. I think what what potentially happened is that young lady had um, gone to bed um, with her boss and the CEO about half an hour before she was due to leave, and was worried that I was gonna I was gonna grass on her for what. Two hoots, to be honest, and had probably got ahead of that with uh, with her bosses. But I think then, CEO of Canada and America saw an opportunity to create a real wedge in the network, and this was their this was their chance to create a huge problem that was then unsolvable, which would allow them to gobble it up. And what then started to happen was Will, who was the CEO of Global, and Jake, who was the CEO of the United States started to publicly litigate each other in the States, the way two FTSE 100 companies were. This is charities, right? Um, Australia at this time deploys into the bushfires and America blocks a $500,000 donation from the States to the Australian bushfire because they were trying to create this brand friction. Um, And so uh, timing escapes me. I I got home from, uh, from Colorado and about two weeks later, there's this dossier lands with all these accusations. Um, so my board has to suspend me pending investigation. So I, I get suspended the day after my wedding. <laughs> um, but then I, I fought it and, and I disproved it all because it was all made up. You know, there was all these ridiculously spurious allegations from now tens of different people all individually claiming these things about me. But they're all anonymized. they all didn't join up. And there was key witnesses at different points that that contradicted the statement. Mm. So anyway, over a long, long period, painful period, I managed to disprove these sexual allegations. But I was like, yeah, in the room, did I probably use that language and call them a snowflake? (laughs) That sounds like something I probably would have done in, yeah. Uh, So I'm like, that probably definitely did happen. But the rest of this stuff, the really salacious stuff, 
was them just trying to blow the network up. But then this didn't come out till years later. Right, so it was a, essentially a non-event because there were allegations that were then disproved, we all go back on living our lives. React or Team Rubicon is then very public in the UK during the pandemic. We're doing all this stuff and, and the litigation, this is why the context is important between Jake and Will comes to its final throwdown um, at around about the June time. Now, we would, we had already told them we're leaving the network, we're going to rebrand to be React. Jake needed us in the network because we were the biggest dog in his part of the fight. Not that we took a side, but we were the biggest part of that network. And America and him were in the shootout. So one of them, and I, th I think it was probably Will because he had previous, leaked it to the papers to distract me to hopefully keep us in the network longer to keep that fight going. And the papers picked up on the link with Prince Harry because Prince yeah. Harry had, uh, and obviously Prince Harry was in the papers. That's that right. was like his heyday so, of being. It was something like um, the prince's favourite charity boss in drunk scandal, something like, you know, typical salacious headline. Picture of me, picture of Will, front page of the Mail and the Times, or page three, anyway. Um, and they were then going to start running multiple pieces. It was gathering. Um, because the Telegraph wanted to do a follow-on piece, because they said, oh, we've done all these positive pieces, and we want to fight your corner. I was like, no, you don't, you just want to sell paper. Yeah. Luckily for me, uh, Dominic Cummings drove to Barnard Castle that night. Um, so there was other things to talk about the next day, because it was going to roll on, because I think it was a slow news period. And they had done loads of positive stuff on me and the charity, and there's nothing better than building something up to rip it down. But this is what... Sorry, in, when, I, when I heard about this and read about this, because... You've spent your early years serving for our country. You then spend your later years um, running charities. Yeah. And you're now in the heat of the heart of the pandemic, um, doing disaster recovery and helping out. Yet our lovely papers still <laughs> decide to villainize you yeah. because of some ridiculous incident a year and a half ago where they don't know the fact. Yeah. I mean, sorry, that that annoys me but how does it make you feel I mean how did it make you feel I mean I was, I've always been wary of the press anyway and I'd, I'd always said I didn't want to be I didn't want react to become a sort of a branding of my personality but it was becoming it I was the face of it it was my words it was my pit blah, blah, blah. but I knew at some point I was going to end up on the wrong side of the press because everyone does and I, I was you know I was always worried about it I was always nervous about it um, and I they just drive me nuts. This clickbait culture, the sensationalism, the way they just polarise everything. I think our press is the worst in the world for irresponsible behaviour and yeah. destroying people's lives. And I mean, like Caroline Flack and, and people like that. Um, they'll, they will do anything to sell a paper now, whether it's ethical or not. And the, I think the days of the free press being an important part of our political landscape are long gone. Way gone. Way gone. They might say they're independent. They're not independent to their shareholders and they're trying to sell papers and they'll do anything to sell a paper. And, you know, I've been in loads of gunfights. I've been in loads of difficult situations. I, put, I still put myself in difficult situations now where, like, you know, fear would be a thing. I would do them all at once to not be back on the front page of the papers in that way. But doesn't that say something? You've been blown up in Afghanistan. Yeah. And yet the hardest thing was... Being in, on our paper, in yeah, our yeah. papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not being in control and like, and seeing it starting to spiral and not being able to do anything to control it. Because the, um, the next day, so the guy that wrote the first story was, uh, I forget his name, 
but he he was the Oxfam buster. He did the big bust on Oxfam and their um, inappropriate behaviours in Haiti. Oh, yeah. Um, so he had another charity and he thought he was about to uncover the next big scandal because what happens is once you're, once you're up on hold like that, anyone that's got an axe to grind can then come and have a pop. And there's plenty of those in my background. And so there was someone we'd recently dismissed, wrote to him and said that I'd been covering up sexual assaults abroad that I hadn't done, but that other people in the organisation had done that I knew about and I was covering them up. And I was like, right, here we go. And this was all made up, but then I've got, I've only given 70 hours to prove this paper wrong. Otherwise they'll print. Luckily, he's a, he is a journalist of record. Um, so I did get the 70 hours. The mail would have just printed that. Oh, yeah. um, and then I'd have to prove it later, but the damage would have been done and React would have fallen apart. Luckily, I had 70 hours, which was just about enough time to disprove completely that it was, it was all bullshit. But that could, have, that could have gone a very different way. And I was sitting there just watching my life about to unravel. Um, and had it not been for him giving me 70 hours, which was enough time to gather the evidence, and Dominic Cummings, you know. How does that make you feel today, though, given that you've served and given that you've helped so many people? Um, I don't think the fact that I served or that I've done good work, you know, means that you've then got carte blanche to do whatever you want the rest of your life. You know, you've no, still got to be a citizen. No, of course not. Um, and so actually, I don't know if my prior service came into my mindset then, all the service I was doing then, the injustice of it. Yeah. And just the... Just the anything that sells papers, you know. Um, I wasn't all, oh, woe is me, I've done all this good stuff. I was just like, the, the situation right now is, 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 you know, I'm running this mission at the moment, supporting the NHS, doing all this stuff. Yes. But it's here and now, it's present, and you are now derailing it to sell a paper. Well, and you were doing important stuff at the time, you know. Yeah, we, were we, were ICU in the wards, we were in the yeah. centre of the Vaccination centres, ICU wards, on the very front end, deploying veterans into that space. And, but we had to keep raising money and that was a target round, right? And then all of a sudden the funding starts falling apart. So I'm trying to rebuild everything that we've just built um, based on a nothing story that they just want to sell papers for. Okay, so let's go to where you are today. Mm. So you no longer in Team React. No. Um, what's your new, is there a new challenge? Yeah, so I started a business with uh, an old mate of mine uh, last year. He's another ex-Marine, um, well, former Marine, we say. And um, we, we started off to go and fuse our experiences, my, my work in rapid response um, abroad. He's been working in sub-Saharan Africa for the UK and US government a lot. And we, and we just started feeling this out. But I wanted to build something along the similar lines of React, taking, taking the best of the military and reapplying it into private sector contexts, in complex spaces, in difficult to reach areas. And that was the idea. But like anything, when you start a business, you just got to start. And what we thought it was going to be is not what it is becoming. Um, and we are on this really quite exciting path at the moment as we've, we're getting pulled quite hard into sub-Saharan Africa and, and Congo. Um, so Congo and down. Um, we've done tech transformation in London, which we never thought we were going to be doing. But we are, I think, on the verge of uh, something quite large in Africa where we'll be taking you know, people without our backgrounds um, I can't say too much about it though, so I'm trying not to be deliberately veiled, but um, it uh, is under NDA. But reapplying the skills of the military to operate in uncertainty and complexity, 
to deliver outcomes. What is that key to success in those high pressured situations mm. that you deliver so well in? Is that, yeah. what is that sort of mental attitude? I, guess? I think we're quite good at controlling our emotions. I think um, in, the, in the areas where we're working, there is the fact that we're in that particular country can be overwhelming to some. So just being in that environment can be overwhelming. And then the work that we're trying to do in the complexity and the corruption we're trying to do it, where there is violence, there's a lot of things that can create an emotion. And if you let your emotions make too many of your decisions, you don't always necessarily make the best decision. And I think we're quite good at standing back, compartmentalising and focusing on what has to be done and being very task focused and not worrying about some of those other things that could derail the, um, the delivery. I'm going to be so stereotyped now and just say, I know what, as, women, as, as a woman, I can't compartmentalise my emotions. <laughs> I would that never, I would as never a male, female like that. thing, I can say that, we can't. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? How do you do that? Because you do it with mm. success as well. And, and you're talking high-pressured situations, yeah. worldwide disasters in, in mm. your previous... Um, how do I do it? I, th I think it's a... It's my lifetime of learning, you know, so, and I'm going to keep getting better at it, I hope, as I keep going. But, you know, I was brought up in a certain way um, by mum and dad who quite stoic, both of them, quite pragmatic, matter-of-fact people, then joined the core, which further helped develop that. And I have perspective points throughout my life and I keep creating new perspective points. So the situation I'm in, I'm always confident, is never as bad as it feels. You know, and if you can if you can recognise that the feeling is you worrying about something that's probably not going to happen, and you can that. park it because what's the point of worrying about something that hasn't happened yet? Just focus on the thing that you know. Focus on the certainty, and don't worry about the stuff you can't control. And and I think the more you do it, the more you practice it. Um, the only way to get good at doing hard things is to do hard things, and then it becomes more instinctive. Yeah, I guess we've all lived in this, well, not all of us, but some of us have been in this state of fear with not being able to control, let's mm. say, the pandemic. I didn't want to talk about that. But, <laughs> uh, and, and that has driven fear mm. because people haven't, I guess, had your skill set or your tools of compartmentalizing mm. emotion. Because if you just do look at it as a day-to-day -day thing, it's like, well, what am I doing today now in mm. this present moment to get me through to the next day? Yeah. Whatever it may be, people are like looking forward and and thinking, oh my God, we're going into world of, you know, obliteration mm. or whatever, and they're, and they're thinking about something that we don't know is going to happen, yeah. hasn't happened yet. And so. the media creates this as well, you know, I, I sort of, I'm very careful on what I listen to at the moment, because you can just create anxiety for yourself by listening to all this stuff, and you worry about things that haven't happened yet. And we've, we're built with these fight and flight mechanisms that kept us alive when we were running away from dinosaurs. Those mechanisms were very good at getting us to this point, but we don't need them in the same way anymore. They don't need to govern our behaviour the way they used to because those dangers have gone. And um, controlling, controlling the inputs that are going in and what you're making decisions upon, I think is an important part of getting used to this new, this new world that's ever-changing and the threats are different. It's, it's, there's very few physical threats to us anymore, but we still let, you know, because we haven't evolved enough, let those fight-flight responses take control in these circumstances when actually we, we don't need to. What advice would you give to anybody that's um, that's leaving the military now or maybe to your younger self when you were leaving? Because mm. when we talked about it, you said there wasn't a lot there or you didn't know how to transition. Mm. What advice, knowing what you know now, would you give someone um, that's leaving? 
I mean, whether I'd give myself different advice or not, I don't know, because everything that I've done has all been part of the journey and I really like where I'm at. So whatever I did there, whatever I learned has been important to me. So I'll probably let him go and do it all over again the same way. Um, but, you know, advice for people leaving um, is to, I think sometimes when you leave the military, you get shoehorned into certain areas, you know, health and safety, security, close protection. Close protection. And, you know, that's all, um, they're all good professions. But there's, there is also a lot more out there and we're not all the same. Just because you've served in the military doesn't mean that that is the box you have to fit in. And I'm much more reflective now. I understand what makes me tick really quite well now, but I'm 40 now, I'm not 29. Um, well, I'm not 40 yet, but I'm 39. Um, and actually, if I could spend more time then thinking about who I am, what makes me tick, I'd have never gone to the bank because I'd have understood money doesn't make me tick. So I, I could have missed out that three years. And I think that's what I would say to people leaving the military. Actually, do you understand what makes you tick outside of being a soldier? And then try and construct your life around that, you know, sort of anchor yourself in your values and what makes you happy. I love that. Richard, I think that's a great note to finish on, what makes you tick and figuring yeah. that out. But uh, yes, I look forward to seeing your new business unfold yeah, and thanks. see what comes on next. Awesome. Thanks for having me back. Thank you, Richard. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.